Let's bow our heads. Father, just take these few moments and uh, help us to maybe hear better who we can be and how we can be uh, reflecting your love and what it means to be people who, who are loved by you. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, uh, there is a number of little statements that uh, help people kind of identify with corporate America. So I'm, I'm going to share with you some of you may have heard these. You know you work for corporate America if you're at, you, you've sat at the same desk for four years and worked for three different companies. You know you work for corporate America if your company welcome sign is attached with Velcro. You know you work for corporate America if the company logo on your badge is drawn with a post-it note. You know you work for corporate America, and some of you can relate to this, if you sit in a cubicle smaller than your bedroom closet. A few of you got that. You know you work for corporate America if it's, if it's dark when you drive to and from work. And, and I like this one. You know you work for corporate America if fun is when issues are assigned to someone else. Or you know you work for corporate America if art involves a whiteboard. You know, you work for corporate America if you're already late on the assignment you just got. Or, you know, you work for corporate America if your supervisor's favorite lines are when you get a few free minutes or in your spare time or when you're freed up or I have an opportunity for you. <laughs> you know, you work for corporate America if you only have makeup for fluorescent lighting and uh, Last, you know, you work for corporate America if you've heard this entire list and you understand it. Well, Tim J. McGuire, former editor of Minneapolis Star and former president of American Society of Editors, newspaper editors, was speaking at a seminar called Faith, Religion and Values. And he said these words, work is brutal. Work is a four letter word. Most people don't think that work could possibly have anything to do with spirituality. They assume that these two worlds cannot mesh. But if we bring our souls to work, then we can transform our work. That is when our work can begin actually to transform us. And he states this, the problem for most people is that their work transforms them into something bad, something bitter and tired and broken. Anybody relate? He, he just makes the point that as we look at this passage in Titus, that that Paul is writing to these people in Crete. He makes a similar point when he writes to him and he says, you know, your workplace can be an opportunity where you can see lives transformed or you can be transformed and become someone who is bad, bitter, tired and broken. It's just a matter of really how you answer what I think are some questions, three questions we're going to look at today. But before we look at that, I just want to share with you in chapter two of Titus, Paul writes these words. He says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything. Well, that sounds a little bad right off the bat. I'm going to apply this to work and we're going to see how this applies to work. But he says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. So that in every way. They will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. 
In this passage, Paul turns his attention to slaves. He's been talking about a number of different things. But at this point, he's addressing people who give not just 20, 30, 40, or 50 hours of their week to work. He's talking to people and addressing people whose life was their work. It was their job. 24-7. Many, if not the majority of the early believers, were slaves. So when he was writing these letters to Colossae and and to Ephesus and to, to Crete, to Titus and to Timothy and different places, when he would talk about slaves, he was actually writing to a whole group of people who had said, I want to be a follower of Jesus. They raised their hand and said, I want to follow the way of Jesus, the, the life of Jesus. And in so doing, he needed to talk to them about how they lived their life as slaves or how you live your life in the work world. Because in that time... The majority of early believers probably were slaves. Historians actually estimate that 870,000 people lived in Rome. And of the 870,000 people, 570,000 of them were slaves. The workforce. Some slaves were really highly educated and, and very well trained. Some were doctors. There were some that were engineers. There were some that were just craftsmen. But there were a majority of them who were doing menial tasks. And there were a whole number of ways you could become a slave. You could become under the employ full time of someone, so to speak. And that was, um, first of all, you could be actually born into slavery. You were um, of your parents were slaves. So you also then took on that role. Some actually came into slavery because they were prisoners of war. Rome would go and they'd fight, they'd conquer an area. They wouldn't bring back everybody, but they would often take the very skilled laborers. They'd take the doctors, the engineers, and some of the very highly trained craftsmen. They would bring them back to the city, and they would put them in a place where they would then be able to be purchased or bought by, in, by individuals who would then use them, in a sense, as their workforce. Some became slaves by choice or necessity. To think about it, they actually chose to be slaves. They might declare bankruptcy, sell themselves into slavery until they were able to purchase their way back out, if they could. Others would sell themselves to a wealthy individual. They would devise a contract, and in that contract, they would say they would do these things full-time, 24-7, if they would provide protection, health benefits, pension plan. Sound a little familiar? I mean, that was the workforce. It's, it's what you do if you work for someone. There is the, 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 the very real fact that what you do is you devise a contract. You say for a period of time, whether it's eight hours a day or, they, or responsibilities that need to be done, which can sometimes take 10 to 15 hours, whatever it's going to be. You devise a contract. They say for this time, I will pay you to do what I want you to do. And, and you're doing this. I will provide this, this, this and this. Isn't it amazing that the Bible, Paul, actually addresses you in your workplace? And when I gave this message in the first service, I I noticed this is not an easy message to give. I don't necessarily enjoy giving it. When I gave it, I saw people sitting like this at times. Because this, someone came up to me afterwards and said, you know, boy, I just need to get recalibrated every now so I need to kind of hear what you had to say. Well, it's not what I have to say. I think it's what... What God, through Paul, in this letter has to say to people who say, I want to follow Jesus, and in following Jesus, I want my life to reflect his love and his, his character, and in that character, I want it to have an influence on other people's lives. So Paul has just finished in chapters 2, 1 through 8, and he's been speaking to older men and, and 
elderly women, and then to younger men. And he gives a whole list of things in which they should do and how they should conduct themselves as followers of Jesus. Now he turns to this huge, large class of people, which as I would probably in this sanctuary, it would probably be about 80% or more of you would fit into this. And he turns to them and he says, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what I want you to do. And what I want you to do is ask these three questions. And the very first question is this. I think they're very important questions to ask. And the first one is this. Who do you work for? That's really what Paul begins, in a sense, by saying. He doesn't say it in verse 9, necessarily. But his life says it. Because you first have to determine who really is your boss. Who you are really ultimately accountable to. Not for a quarterly review or a yearly review, but in a sense, an eternal review. This person that someday you will answer to, and you answer to even now, whether you you, um, have opportunities at times to sit down with God and say, here's my life with regard to my work, but you will answer to Him. And so you ask yourself, who do I work for? Who really is my boss? Who really is supervising me? And Paul assumed that this person was not some person that he was um, answering to as a supervisor, but was really Christ himself. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul describes himself this way, and he always saw himself this way. Paul, a servant or slave, it says, of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Literally, he was a slave who was sent by Jesus to do a work greater than just the work that he was employed to do. Now you say, well, wasn't Paul like a pastor? Didn't he like have a job like you have, Kevin? No, Paul was a person who would go from city to city where he would tell people about the tell people about what it meant to follow Jesus. And in that process, he did never he never wanted to come into a place where he would get, you know, things mixed up. He would always come into a new city and he would actually work in a place where he would get pay so that he wasn't getting pay from the people he was trying to lead into this relationship with Jesus. He never wanted that to be confused. He never wanted people to say, well, you're saying this because you want money from us. He didn't do that. He came into these places, and when he'd come into a city, he would find where the tent maker's place was, where they built tents, and he would say, you know, I can do, I can make tents. If I make tents, would you pay me such and such? And the guy would go, yeah, I'll pay you so and so. And they would set this contract. He would work for them for a period of time making tents. He would give his energy to that so that when he was free he could do this work where he could tell people about what it meant to follow Jesus but he never saw himself as just under his employ he always saw his whole life under the mission in the sense of what Jesus was calling him to do and really the first question you have to ask yourself when you think about work is this who do you really work for you do work for someone and you do answer to this person and we'll talk about what that means for in a moment but you always have to keep it I hope you keep it under this uh, this greater umbrella of the fact that you work for a God who has a mission in your life that Jesus has called you to do something greater than just what you're employed to do there The Apostle Paul made that very clear. No matter what circumstance he was in, it didn't matter what circumstance he was in. He always saw himself under the care and sovereign employ of God. In fact, when he was in prison, you know what he says? He was not a prisoner of Rome. It actually says in the word of God that he calls himself a prisoner of who? A prisoner of Jesus Christ. You know, the simple shift in your in your thinking will make a difference in the way you work. You're not just making widgets. Anybody remember had econ class and remember this whole thing about making widgets? Anybody ever made a widget? I, I don't know what widgets really were, but I remember in econ class they talked about making widgets. You know, you're not just doing some menial task. 
You're not just working to produce something for someone else. You're not just selling another program or product. You're not just managing people towards another performance quota. You're not just stocking another shelf. You're not just selling another piece of real estate. I don't care what it is and who you're working for. You're doing far more than that. You're actually working for Christ, and Christ has something for you to do in the place that you work. Now, that doesn't mean you don't do all those things well. We'll talk about that in a moment. But there's something greater for you. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, Paul says this to the church of Ephesus. Same kind of things happening there. Many, many of the work class were slaves. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would what? Obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like who? Slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Isn't that funny? As you read that, he's saying the work you're doing is in a sense, if you basically signed up for it, it's the will of God for you in that situation. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he's a slave person or a free person. So I just want to suggest to you one thing that might be helpful for you if you're struggling with this fact of who am I really working for? What does it mean to to work for one as if I was obeying Christ and not just my boss? I encourage you to take this Ephesians passage and, and to take it and put it on a slip of paper and to, and to just kind of memorize it and read it and let it go over in your mind as you pray on your way to work. It may be a good way to just remind yourself, hey, I am working not for this person, although I'll work my hardest in that sense for him, but I will work primarily for God. Which really leads you to the next question, because the next question is, if you're really working for God, then you have to ask yourself, what does a good worker look like? That's where Paul gets into the meat of this, is verse 9. What does a good look like, a worker look like? When you are under the employ of God and not under a human boss or a corporate system, what should be the checklist you run over in your mind before you punch the clock or you walk through the office door or make your first sales call or get your kids off to school or see your first patient or whatever it is you do? What is the things that should be kind of that punch list that you run through your mind to what it means to be a good worker? Well, Paul lists basically three things, and it all comes under this idea that a good worker shows up with a good attitude. A good worker who is employed, who sees Jesus as their, as their supervisor and true boss, shows up with this good attitude. And there's three things that he talks about in this passage of Scripture. If you look at verses 9 and 10, he says, first, they have a willing spirit or attitude. Secondly, he talks about a hardworking attitude and spirit. And thirdly, they have a trustworthy spirit. And so he begins and he says, as he, he consults these people who have raised their hands and said, I want to follow Jesus. I want to live like Jesus. He says, if that's what you want to do, then the first thing I want to consult with you about is this. You need to come with a willing spirit. Verse 9 of chapter 2. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. The word subject means simply to voluntarily submit your will to your employer for the period of time you have contracted to them. That's What God's will is for you. And he calls it voluntary submission. And the idea of submission, the whole word submission means to place your personal agenda below your personal mission below the mission that is being carried out by your by your employment. It's the same word you get for submarine, which means what? A vehicle, a, a vessel that's below the water or subprime for some of you like in finances. It means below what prime. 
You, you get this idea that you voluntarily put yourself under that person's mission with your agenda for a period of time. In fact, all the great saints, um, that's one of the reasons why God uses them. So Mother Teresa was passing through a crowd in Detroit and a woman remarked and said this. You know what her secret is? Her secret is that she is free to be nothing. Her secret is that she is free to be nothing. Therefore, God can use her for anything. See, the opposite of a willing spirit is a rebellious spirit. It shows up in all kinds of ways. One of the ways a rebellious spirit shows up that is not a willing spirit is in this area of respect. If you're a willing spirit, according to God's word here, as what he says here when he says, teach your slaves to be subject to the masters and everything, it shows up with respect. So you have to ask yourself, are you respectful? Or do you diss your supervisor or your company? And if you're a follower of Jesus and you say that my way, and I'm not talking about your words right now as much as I'm saying your way of living, which includes your words, does it show respect? How do you speak about your boss to others? How do you talk to people about your company? What's your attitude like? Does your disrespect tear down your team of associates? Remember, you're called to show respect and honor due to the person's position. It is the recognition of their position that demands respect and not so much how they fill it or whether they even deserve it. That is a follower of the way of Jesus principle. You give respect to the position, whether it is a parent or it is a supervisor or it is someone in government, whether they even deserve it or they fill that position in a way that demands respect. That's hard to do. I'm looking at you and you're going, are you telling me this is really true? You've got to do this. Well, I can tell you, you can't do it in your own strength. I know that. That's what makes you come back to the place of brokenness, which is all about the gospel and which is about grace. It's not about trying to do this perfectly. It's about saying, God, I really need your help because I am not able and capable to kind of do this stuff. But I want to and I want you to show up in me in order to do that. Do you have a positive attitude, not just respectful, but positive attitude in the workplace? I mean, you may be thinking, how can you have a positive attitude in this place? I mean, you, you don't work in my little cubicle. You don't work with these people that I work with. You know what? I'm sure these slaves that Paul was writing to could easily say the same thing. But that, again, is that point where you come to and you say, God, this is this life that I've been called to live is far more about what I can is is not so much about what I can do in my own strength. It's really about what you can do. So you have to teach me. I'm asking you in this situation. It may be the very situation, which is your place of growth right now. It is that which God is calling you to come out in character and become like Jesus. It could be a test. You want to put it that way. An opportunity for you to express God in you. And Paul often says to stay positive, or if you think about this, to stay positive in a negative environment, Paul would give in other, in other scriptures you would find, he says, keep your eye on God's reward, not on the reward you're going to get here. He'll say, remember the pain will eventually bring gain. It is character building. And then I just have to say to you very honestly, in some environments, in some situations where it is so negative that you, it just beats you down, it is probably not the right place for you. There are, there are occasions where you're not a quitter. 
is you pay attention to the Lord and the Lord and you work through it and you really seek to work through something like this. And you come to a place, you go, you know, what? maybe this isn't the right place due to values or other things for who I am. And that's OK. It's better to be honest with it than to stay in a situation where you then create harm. Paul counsels Titus and he says, teach those who kind of have raised their hands, say, I want to follow after Jesus to have a hard working spirit. Look at verse nine. Paul continues with these instructions. He says, teach slaves to try to please their masters, not to talk back to them. And again, I, I kind of go to this and I go, you know, these are difficult things to do. How do you show up with a hardworking, willing spirit at times when you come into some of these environments? And I think just think of Paul speaking to a person who is a slave who doesn't have a kind of boss who's going, now, how are you doing today? Are we providing you with the resources you need to get this job done? Can you imagine some of these masters who, you know, get out there, get, you know, it wasn't a very pleasant place often to work. You know what? A study has found in University of Florida. They did a study here in 2007. They surveyed and they found that employers, employees who endure abuse from their boss retaliate with poor performance. Isn't that interesting? So some of you who are employers, the way you treat those you employ will often dictate how they respond. The survey has found that when, 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 when you find a person who's either oppressive or abusive in there as a, as a supervisor, whether it be they give you the silent treatment and don't get back to you in communication, or they, they, they actually personally put you down, or they break promises, or they blame you for things that really are their responsibility, all those kind of things, they found that the response is poor performance. And here comes Paul coming along and says, I want you to do something you can't do in your own strength. When you find yourself in these circumstances and your boss is talking to you in this way, he says, teach slaves to do this, to try to please them and not talk back to them. To have a hardworking spirit, I just think it means a couple things. It means to show up ready to work. That's what to please means. It means, how can I show up here ready to do the work that, that they've called me to do? I can only think of the word please, um, and it gives me the ability to understand it and see it visually when I think of this dog that I have at home. It's a golden retriever, German short hair mix, and it looks like a black lab. I come home, and, and every, every fiber of its being wants to please it sees me and it runs up and it sits down and looks at me like this and just, have you ever seen a dog like that? It just shakes. And then it'll run and it'll get its little toy that has a little rope to it and it will want me, she'll want me, Lila will want me to throw this toy and, and she'll run after it. She'll bring it back and she'll be waiting for me to throw it and I'll do it until my arm's sore. And then we'll get done and I'll put it in and she'll be sitting there and it's like, what can I do now? Well, what can I do now? Now, I'm not asking you to do that at work. That would look a little weird if you came into your boss. That's the spirit, though. Show up ready to work. Not talking back, not complaining. Show up ready to work. A can-do kind of spirit. Show up ready to give your best, is what I think he's saying here. To please means not just to do good enough performance, but it means to do great performance. It's an attitude that strives for excellence, even down to the details. It's the attitude that says, I'll take an extra five minutes to make this not just something good, but really something great. It's the kind of attitude that's generated by the person who understands that they're working not for their boss, but really for Jesus. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. 
in verse 23. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for who? The Lord, not man. Not only show up ready to work, but show up ready to give your best at work. Remember what he says in Ephesians. Paul writes this. Obey them not only win favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, listen to this, doing the will of God from your heart. Michelangelo painted matchless frescoes on the high ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. My youngest daughter right now is living a block and a half from the Vatican in Rome, and she just talks about when she goes over there and she sees these beautiful frescoes. I've been there. I've seen those. Some of you probably have been to Rome and maybe you've seen the Sistine Chapel and you see these incredible detailed artwork where Michelangelo would spend countless hours on his back, high in the air, carefully perfecting the detail of each figure that he was drawing. A friend once asked him, when he, you know, why do you take such pains with the figures which can only really be seen from a distance and no one can really see the detail that you're involved in? After all, his friend said, who will ever know whether it's perfect or not? And Michelangelo replied, I will, and so will God. Martin Luther King, six months before he was assassinated, he spoke at a junior high, Barrett Junior High, October 26th in Philadelphia. And he said this, and I like these words. He says, if it falls on your lot, and he's speaking to a bunch of junior high African-American kids in this inner city Chicago, and he's talking to him and he says, if it falls on your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michael Angelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so, that, so well that the host of heavens will have to give pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. It's attention to details that makes the difference between what is good and what is great. Whether it's a delicious meal. A musical production, a play, an automobile, what you do at home, wherever it is. And he says, show up and give your best. And so I ask you to think for a second. Do I have a willing spirit? Do I have this hard working spirit? What are my work habits really like? And the third is this. Paul consults Titus and he says to him, tell them to have a trustworthy spirit. Note verse 10, teach slaves not to steal, but to show they can be fully trusted. This means to show up to work with integrity, show you can be and catch this. Not just can you be trusted, but fully trusted. Show you can be fully trusted so your boss has no problem leaving you with the cash box or the keys to the store or with projects as he leaves to go on vacation. Are you the kind of person that when he or she hands something off to you, you're able to take it and they can leave and they know that it will be completed. It will be done. Paul is calling for the kind of character that comes not... It's not the kind of character that comes from someone whose eye is on you, but it's the kind that comes from within. It's a character that's built. So it's more about who you've become because you know who you are related to. I remember a number of years ago, I think it was about 20 some years ago, New York had a blackout. You remember there was that time when New York City had this blackout? And all kinds of people who would normally never, ever steal anything were actually caught stealing. All because of what? The conditions were ripe. There were no lights. And really what kept them from stealing in the past wasn't their character, but was simply the opportunity. 
And I think what Paul is saying, when you look at the word of God, he's always calling people to understand who they're related to. And as they relate to him, and if you, you say, I want to be a follower of the way of Jesus, what has to happen? And I talked about this Sunday after Sunday because this is what God's doing in me. It's all about how does he develop your character? So that it's not that you're doing certain things and you're being good or you're, you're fulfilling tasks and you're being responsible because someone's watching you. And then when you're watch, being watched, you do it really well. It's this idea that no matter what you put your hand to, whatever you do, says Paul, whatever you work at, you do it with your whole heart. Because it's God in you and it's God whom you're related to. Fully trusted means this. You don't steal time by consistently showing up late or leaving early. Or taking a lot longer breaks than what you're really afforded. You don't steal supplies, whether it's stamps, paper, pens, or whatever you think the company owes you because you put in a lot of time that they don't really think about. It doesn't mean stealing energy from your associates through your attitude. Now, I know this is all really hard stuff to hear. I remember <laughs> you kind of look like the first service. Oh, man. I... I wrote it and I feel the same way. But there's something that's really important here. Not only who do you work for, not only what kind of, what is a good worker or what does a good worker look like, but ultimately whose credibility is at stake. This is more than just about you folks. It's more than about me. In fact, that's what, what Paul ends his letter by saying. What's at stake here is the credibility of the one that you say you've raised your hand and said, I follow. This little phrase at the end of verse 10. The bottom line is this. You ultimately work for and serve Jesus who and who you are and what you do reflects on him. So Paul says, be a good worker. And here's what he, the, the result being so that in every way you will make the teaching of God, our Savior, attractive in such a way that a person looks at your life. They don't maybe understand what's going on. See, Paul is taught. You know, what's really interesting in a lot of the letters of Paul. He never goes around and says, tell people they should become Christians. Tell people they should follow Jesus. Now, you would think that would be big in all his letters. You know what he goes around and says to people in almost all his letters? Live in such a way that people want to be like you. That's a whole lot harder. Live your life in such a way that out of the goodness that you've experienced from God and his grace and the love that you begin to experience that has made you secure within yourself, that sense of security begins to do things that are good out of this well-being always comes well-doing. And if it's not that you if you haven't had this deeper sense where you understand how much God loves you, then start praying for that understanding. So that out of your life begins to flow the kind of things that people look at and they go, I, that's attractive. You've probably never heard of this guy. His name is Wilbert Williams. If you're from Chicago, maybe you do. Because he's not real famous or real rich. Still, Williams received an honor that really is normally, con- it's reserved for people who have connections, they're powerful, and they're usually pretty wealthy. On December 2nd, the year 2004, the city of Chicago designated a street as Wilbert Williams Way. It was in honor of this person's upcoming retirement. Now you're kind of wondering, well, what was he doing? Maybe someplace in the Chicago city offices, whatever. Well, what did someone as unknown as Williams do to deserve that kind of tribute? It becomes a more compelling question when you realize that for nearly 40 years, Wilbert Williams worked at the Women's Athletic Club as a doorman. 
He was the doorman at the women's athletic club in Chicago. And they're doing this big party and celebrating him and putting Wilbert Williams way. This honorary street sign, which is normally not given to those um, who hold doors open for others, but for the person whose door is open for them, right? And what set Williams apart? He's carried out his duties in exemplary fashion. Police officer Paul O'Donnell said, in all these years, I have never heard him speak a harsh word about anyone. He's a gentleman. Through his kindness and service to others, Williams made an impact on those he met at the corner of Michigan and Ontario. We're not talking about a guy who is powerful and rich and had the ability to influence all kinds of people. He opened a door. And he did it so well that people said, let's name a a way after him, a a street after him. Because he was so good, not at just opening the door, but his attitude, his heart. He was willing, hardworking, trustworthy, there every day. He did his job in such a way that he reflected something far better and far greater than just opening doors. I don't care who you are. We all have that opportunity. Every one of us, wherever we're at, have the ability by God within us to show up. Now, we may not get ways named after us, but we do get rewarded. God says so. Williams made an impact on those he met on the corner of Michigan and Ontario, commenting on why he has always helped tourists, pointing them in the right direction. He says, you know, why do you help the tourists? He goes, Williams says, if I was in a different city, I'd like someone to help me. That's pretty simple logic. See, the way you work and the way your life displays itself among your colleagues gives credibility to who you really follow. Your attitude, your willing spirit, your work habits, your ability to be trusted will either attract people to Jesus or detract people from Jesus. Every day you give people an option. Every day you give people an option. Is your boss better than their boss? Is the gift of grace and goodness enjoyed by a God-directed life more attractive than the wages of sin that is lived by a selfish life? Every day you have an option. Every day you have an opportunity to become a bad, bitter, tired, broken person, or you have the option to come in the power of God and through his strength and through his energy to become the kind of person that is like a Wilbur Williams that opens up ways for people to see God in ways they had never seen him before. And you are, folks, where you are, in the place you're at, and it's not by mistake. And your work matters. And what you do from 9 to 5, I really do believe, has an impact. And to make a difference in people's lives doesn't mean you have to leave your secular employment to become a pastor. You have, where you are at, a place to make a difference. I was at the National Prayer Breakfast about a week ago, and afterwards they had these breakout sessions. And, and in one of, there was a pastor's session, which I walked right by because I thought, well, I don't want to do the pastor thing. And I went to the business session, and there were about 80 businessmen in there. And I thought this would be fun. I want to hear what they're going to say to the businessmen. And in walked to this room of 80 people, Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church. He comes to the front and he shares some things that really impacted my life. But he tells a story to begin what he was going to talk about. He, he tells a story. He says, just a, a number of months ago, the CEO of Adidas called him. Now, there's a, now I let you know there's a number of CEOs, so I don't know which one exactly it was because they have a number of divisions. But the guy called him, the CEO of Adidas, and he said, I read your purpose-driven life book. 
and it changed my life. As a result of it, I want to follow Jesus. He says, so I'd really like to meet with you, Rick. And, and Rick said, well, that'd be great, so why don't you come to church on Sunday? And the guy said, well, oh, yeah, I think I can do that. You know, Rick Warren lives in Saddleback, Orange County, California. I don't know where this guy lives. But he goes, yeah, I could probably do that. I'm in China on this day. I have to stop in Japan. I could make California. Yeah, I could do that on Sunday. That's yeah, a world I don't live in. But anyway, they meet. After service, Rick Warren sits down with him, and the guy says to him, I want to have purpose in my life. Like your book says, I, and he says, should I quit Adidas? Should I, should I become a, like a minister? Should I become a pastor? And Rick Warren looks at him and goes, no. He says, you're to be an influencer of Jesus right where you work. He said, now let me ask you, when he asked the CEO of Adidas, he says, how many people are in your division, your company? He says, 25,000. He goes, great, that's your congregation. And then he goes, well, how many are on your senior management team? And the guy goes, five. He says, now, how many of them are followers of Jesus? He says, I think one is. He says, why don't you meet with him and start praying for the other three? And he says, okay. And then and, and Rick Warren says to him, he says, let me ask you this. Do you want to influence other CEOs with your position? He goes, yeah, I'd, I'd like to do that. He says, start to find some people who also are followers of Jesus and, and, and get together with them and, and then begin to influence those other people who are CEOs. And then he says, I got another question. Do you want to influence your culture? And he goes, of course I want to influence my culture. That's why I asked you, should I be a pastor or not? He goes, well, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's a real way you can influence your culture. And we're at a political, you know, we're at this national prayer breakfast in Washington, D.C., politics and all the rest. And, and Rick Warren makes this point. He goes, you know, it's really interesting. We think politics really influences our culture. He says, but you know what? He was telling the guy, if you really want to influence your culture, who do you endorse? And he started to name these big athlete stars that he endorses. He goes, he goes, now, let me ask you guys to us. How many teenagers have have posters of politicians on their wall? If you want to influence your culture, then he said to him, go after the guys you endorse. And here's what I'll tell you. I think you should do. He said, you may not meet every guy you endorse, but I think you should. Every every man or woman that you endorse. Why don't you make sure you meet them, give them your card, tell them your name, and then just say this simple thing to them. I want to be your friend, and if you ever need help, give me a call, and I'm serious about that. Here's my card, here's my name, I want to be your friend. If you have, if you have a need ever, give me a call. He said, you know what, one of them is going to have a problem at some point, and they're going to take you up on it. And you're going to have the opportunity to tell them about this purpose of life and what it means to, to be employed by one who is, who is really not you know, some human boss, but by God himself that allows for you to work in such a way that you see your work as far greater than just making widgets, but you have the opportunity to live your life in such a way that it brings credibility to Christ that people go, I want to know this person. And when that person who you endorse comes to you and says that you can change their life and they can change a whole culture. It really doesn't matter if we're Wilbert Williams or we're the CEO of of Adidas. Every person here who has raised their hand and says, I would like to follow you, Jesus, and and I'd like for you to begin to lead me and to to inspire me and move me and, and, and change my heart to become like what I've just heard. You have the ability to influence people. You have a pulpit and a platform, and that pulpit and platform is not your words even so much as it is the way you live your life. Because as you live your life, you will live in such a way that it will either bring credibility to Christ or not. And if credibility is brought to Christ, it will transform where you work. And that's your call.
Right? I feel like putting our hands in there and go, ready, go, and break. But I, maybe that won't work. Um, but let's, let's stand together for a word of prayer.